Hey everybody, Joe here from the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. If you enjoy what we do here on the show and you think it's worth your hard-earned money, you can support the show via Patreon. Just a $1 donation gets you access to bonus episodes, our Discord, and regular episodes before everybody else. If you donate at an elevated level, you get even more bonus content. A digital copy of my book, The Hooligans of Kandahar, and a sticker from our Teespring store. Our show will always be ad-free and is totally supporter-driven. We use that money to pay our bills, buy research materials that make this show possible, and support charities like the Curtis Red Crescent, the Flint Water Fund, and the Halo Trust. Consider joining the Legion of the Old Crow today. And now back to the show. Да, порой случаются вещи, которых ты не хочешь, и ты не можешь это предотвратить. Ну что я тебе всегда говорю? Встань и не сдавайся. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Lines Love by Donkeys podcast. As always, it's me, Joe, and with me is Francis. Again, part two. Hello, Francis. Yeah, I am. I am so excited to talk about more ways one i love being out of the army and then i love talking about other armies because it makes me think about how good i really had it in the army you know nobody ever gave me a mosin nagant and was just like here's your service weapon because that would be fucking insane when you're deploying to afghanistan like we got you this old rusty ak with no sights because we know you'll find more ammo for it i mean to be fair we found a lot of ammo for AK-47s and a lot of shitty AK-47s. But you know what? They were also full auto. And when I went to Afghanistan, all they gave me was a fucking pistol. So I would have taken anything. <laughs> Here, have a rock with a string attached to it. The thing that was even worse, too, was just that I'd never at that point in my life, I'd never shot a pistol in my entire life. I'd only ever shot rifles. So I had no idea what I was doing. They took me out onto the qualification range. I'm like, this is easy. Those targets are super close. There's nothing. Fucking shoot. <laughs> pistol bang but it took me four times to qualify on that fucking thing <laughs> dude i was so bad at fucking shooting a pistol i was like well hope hope it never comes down to that i guess if if you get cornered by the taliban pull out your prison like surprise boys and just shoot yourself in the face <laughs> <laughs> so francis i have one more thing for us before we get started on part two of the polar bear expedition and uh if you remember in part one, I drank my magical Tonus, uh, which, to be perfectly honest, I don't think I'm ever going to top. Um, but I went to the corner store to see if I could find more delightful Russian energy drinks. And wouldn't you know it, there are several different uh, uh, variations, and uh, all of them sound disgusting. Variations on a Tonus? Unfortunately, I don't think any of them are ever going to top Tonus. I, I feel like I started out too high. Um, this one is called, I will, I will read this exactly how it says on the can energy drink, boom, free calorie, zero <laughs> diet, cool fitness, <laughs> um, boom, free, <laughs> boom, free. It's, it's an energy drink without the boom. <laughs> not, this is not an IED. I promise you there's free of booms here. It also says um, sugar-free in English and Armenian. The Armenian is actually correct where it says sugar-free, but it is misspelled as it is translated into English, and uh, it is spelled uh, sugar with an E-R. It also is majority written in Georgian, which is completely foreign to me. There's so many languages that are just like bouncing around over there, and all your dumbass speaks is English, man. How are you even making it? I speak Armenian. Do you? <laughs> yes. Is it you can't read Armenian? My reading my reading Armenian okay. is very, very bad. Okay. 
I'm almost illiterate. Because, yeah, nothing looks like Armenian. Yeah. Well, don't worry. You're, you're just as good as uh, some of the, the, the troops that we're talking about here. Functionally illiterate. It has Georgian, Armenian, and Russian all on it. And uh, you know how it's, uh, it's very good? The official website is a Facebook page. Facebook.com backslash boom.fire.official. <laughs> <laughs> this sounds like something that's made up by fucking Frank Reynolds on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Yeah, this it's is some milk. This is yeah, this is some, you know, fight like a crow right here. We're gonna we're gonna get boom free and fight like crows. At least with Tonus, it told you what it was gonna taste like because it had a picture of like a bushel of grapes on it. This no clue whatsoever. What what does the bouquet give you? What is the scent? What are you smelling? It smells a little like Red Bull. Okay, that's a promising. It's promising. It honestly doesn't taste like anything. That's probably for the best. Like it, it has a hint of Red Bull, but it's like if you diluted it with water because it's barely even carbonated. Well, I will say that I opened up a new vape today and put it on and it says it's raspberry but when i hit it it has the feeling of like you know like when you go into a public restroom and there's like brand new urinal cakes in and but nobody's pissed on them yet it's just got that heady urinal cake smell that's kind of what i got going on here that sounds you you sound like you lost this exchange well it was buy two get one for a penny so i'm going to assume that this (laughs) one is the penny however also i am a little high so i am I thought flavored vapes were illegal now. Well, flavored tobacco vapes. This is flavored weed vape. Fair enough. Uh, uh, life hack. <laughs> life hack. If you want flavored vape, get stoned. Yeah. Uh, so when we left you last time, the fine soldiers of the Detroit zone were dumped into the middle of a Russian swamp with no clue of what they were doing there. And before long, these poor bastards were snatched up by British officers, stuffed into train cars, and sent to aid the very stupid attempt to take the nearby city, Oberskaya, from the Bolshevik forces. So I just want to recap also. So they had an original mission of find this weapons cache. Weapons cache gets raided by... Simply guard it, yes. Yeah, so find it and guard it. Uh, Weapons cache gets raided, and they're like, well, fuck, now what do we do? And then the British are like, technically, you have to listen to us, so uh, let's go all die over here real quick. Pretty much. And the British knew they were going to do this the entire time. (laughs) We have to recap General Poole, that being the commanding British general plan, again, for those who weren't keeping track. Now, he was under the impression that his force that now amounted to be a total of about 4,600 Americans, about 2,000 British, was all he needed to drive 300 miles south and capture the railhead at Volgogda. Uh, From there, he would link up with the Czech Legion, who were supposedly traveling south via rail. Spoiler alert, they're not doing that. Those would also require another 300-plus mile push down the Vena River towards Kotlis or Kotlis. And we'll talk more about that front later on. There's a whole lot of fronts that are very, very small and equally stupid that we'll have to get to before all this is over. Now, I'm looking at this on the map. So this is up by Finland, right? Yes. It's in the, it's in the Arctic North. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so the, it's okay. literally in the polar circle. <laughs> yeah. I remember, I remember Googling the maps yet last week when we were talking about it. And I just I looked for Volgogda, and, but it got, got me... Volgograd, which has the big, you know, lady with the sword statue in it. So that's not correct. That's way south. Uh, yeah, that is incorrect. Yeah, that would be a hell of an advance. 
<laughs> it's just where he's just going to bypass Moscow completely and go. I mean, literally, that's probably about 3000 miles. But we're not doing that. We're in the Arctic Circle up here by Finland. Honestly, that's just a bigger version of the same dumb plan. Uh, the, the grand, this entire area is mostly wasteland with nothing in it. Uh, very, very, very poor peasants. Um, the Red Army generally doesn't give a shit about it. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. Now, the important part here is, as you can imagine, they needed and wanted to do all of this before winter set in. Because they were already damn near in the Arctic Circle, and it was already fucking September. So this all had to happen pretty quickly. Now, back with the boys heading towards Overkovskaya, uh, by the time the train carrying them in got there, uh, the Bolsheviks had blown up the bridge. So they couldn't actually cross into town. So there goes that. Uh, also, the, the town had already been taken on September 4th, and nobody had told them. I love that every these dudes just like keep showing up and it's just like, oh, shit, our job's already done for us. Like, if only I could live this way. I mean, I'm sure everything's right. going to go even worse for them. But like this Ooh, one boy. aspect, <laughs> this, this one aspect of showing up and your work's already done is very nice. Now get to the point where they all die of something stupid. Oh, we're getting we're rapidly getting to that point. Um, now, the Americans uh, got to this area with the blown bridge. The train stopped. They have no other orders. So they just kind of mill about a bit, uh, like hanging out in the boxcars, smoking, huddling together for warmth mostly. And that's when a French officer had to walk over to them and remind them they were, in fact, in an active war zone and they should probably go take cover or something. So they did. Um, the battalion commander, Major Charles Young, ordered his soldiers off the train and into the nearby woods take some cover in some nearby shell craters. That night, the Detroit's own suffered their very first battlefield casualty, however. Late at night, a soldier on guard saw something moving, screamed out for them to stop, and shot at them at the same time, shooting another American in the leg. <laughs> yep, that's about right. You knew as soon as you said their first, uh, their first casualty and you paused, and it's like... Yeah. <laughs> And then it involved a sentry, like someone shooting someone else in the leg. <laughs> yes. At night. Okay. Somebody somebody got up to take a piss and forgot to tell everybody in the in like a a five hundred foot radius of them. I'm gonna go pee. Please don't fucking shoot me. Not to mention the American forces are all jumpy and none of them have seen combat yet. Yeah, what are they jumpy about? Like, I mean, they just seem to be hanging out on boxcars, smoking cigarettes. Like, were they actively getting shelled? Did they have somebody that had to remind them? Like, they could certainly hear shots in the distance. Like, they know that they're in a combat zone. I mean, that sounds like I've had pancakes while listening to AK Fire. Like, it's not it's not that big of a deal. Yeah, it is when they're launching like <laughs> full barrages of artillery at you. Okay, see that's uh, a little different. See, but and but I would just think that you know if I heard explosions going on, I would get to cover. Um, but I mean, I'm an experienced soldier. I'm not uh, some conscripted dude from Detroit. Yeah, these guys have had maybe two weeks of training. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, okay, fair enough. The next day, Company K, under the command of Captain Mike Donahoe, were ordered to go east near the town of Tiogra where some of his platoons had been sent off to guard rail stations and telegraph lines. Mike and his men were issued rations for six days and sent to march over what he called, quote, the worst roads in the world, uh, which <laughs> took them to Russian muskeg, swamp, and marshlands. While they were patrolling for Bolsheviks, now nicknamed Bolos, all they did was get eaten by mosquitoes. And uh, <laughs> only after marching about three miles of swamp that came up to their waist, they decided they had they have seen enough. Yeah, I mean, and they didn't even electrify it. Not yet. <laughs> uh, 
I like that they already came up with a slur too. This is like we can't just call them Bolsheviks; we got to call them bolos. I think I think it's because the vast majority of them had no idea what a Bolshevik was, and it sounded vaguely like bolo knife from the Philippine Wars, which are like most of their officers and senior NCOs may have seen combat in. So it just kind of stuck. I could I can understand that. I mean, I you know never never underestimate the ingenuity of a soldier to come up with a slur for the people that they're trying to shoot. So you know, it's not a slur as much as it's a nickname. Um, I feel like they probably have more colorful slurs that uh, that they did not print in the book. <laughs> when does it become a slur? Like, because Jerry for Germans. That's not a slur. I know, but like they were nicknames, but then they're all like, I'm not going to start repeating them. But, you know, like for Japanese army or because I always thought calling, you know, a guy Haji was respectful. And it turns out, no, that was not respectful Who told at all. you that? <laughs> Dude, look, 2004 was a wild time. Not everybody knew what the fuck they were doing, so. No, people knew what they were doing. They're just racist. <laughs> because if you've actually gone on the Hodge, then you can't. Yeah, but that's then not that how you a, meant it. You meant I it know. as the guy from Johnny I Quest. <laughs> I was 20, and nobody <laughs> fucking told me. I was listening See, to Sergeants, which was my first fucking problem. See, that's what makes it a slur, is, is the racial component. That That's why Japanese soldiers got derogatory nicknames because of the racial component. These farming kids from Nebraska or Kentucky or Detroit probably had no fucking idea what the difference between them and a Russian was. So I could hardly imagine they meant it as a racial slur, especially since it has to do with a Filipino knife. That makes sense. Now, now, you know, the, um, if, (laughs) are they not white? Um, then it's a slur. It's it, it kind of like because like, again with with Germans, well, technically you're Slavs, but I don't think these guys yeah. even know. In the 1940s, were they uh, considered white? like how the uh, how the Italians weren't considered nope, white not until doing like, this. Years ago. <laughs> All right. Anyway, so what's going on with uh, with everybody in uh, what city are we in now? Tiokra. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Now, eventually, the next day, they're found by a messenger telling them that uh, to stop doing that and march down the river uh, to link up with what was called Force D, a detachment of French machine gunners, Royal Marines, and some uh, local, uh, they called it like the, the Slavic Legion or local like volunteers. It was like the Slavic British Legion. And what it amounted to be was local Russian volunteers Kind of, sort of trained by British military, but mostly like just given a gun. Right. Literally the farmers with rifles and we'll give them some like, here's how to use the rifle and here's how to get behind something. If, some, if people are shooting at you, go have fun. Kind of. Because like, obviously the civil war is between the reds and the whites, but like these guys aren't exactly whites yet. Like their political motivation mostly just boils down to the British are giving me food and money. Right. <laughs> They're not exactly anti-communists. Right. Hey, 1917 Russia. Wait, it was in 1917 that we're in? 1918? That general area? Uh, late 1918, 1919. Okay. I mean, I imagine being a Russian in the Arctic Circle, anything that just like, these people will give me warmth and food, then fuck it. Like this, I mean, 2022, I would imagine would be the same thing in Arctic Circle, Russia. I mean, they have like towns and cities now. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I know, I know that they, they, um, but but they're not, they're probably not as well developed. But anyway, I'm very, I'm very comfortable, and I don't like things below forty degrees Fahrenheit. So, I mean, I'm mostly You'd thinking about how irritated. Here. Yeah. Oh, I would have a very bad time. Good thing I'm not from Detroit, I guess. 
Yeah, famously comparable to the Arctic Circle if you're the <laughs> Department of Defense. But the time will come and a long enough timeline where these guys will be some like anti-communist type soldiers, especially the leadership of these weird breakaway warlord factions. But these guys are both mostly just dudes with guns. Uh, they don't really actually have politics quite yet. However, when this unit finally got to this Force D, that's when the Bolos finally found them and uh, they get their first taste of combat. Uh, Bolshevik soldiers rush their positions in the morning, getting so close as to throw hand grenades at them. And it was the first time that virtually any of the Americans had ever seen combat. And if that wasn't bad enough, the, uh, the Bolos began flying planes overhead, which they then used to walk artillery in on their positions. Because remember, these guys mostly... Ex-Zarist soldiers, war veterans, they've been fighting for a very long time. Uh, They're better at this than the Americans are. (laughs) Now, reportedly at this point, a lot of the rank-and-file American soldiers kind of wanted to say, fuck this noise and retreat. Uh, But one of the things that kept them in place is looking over to their French counterparts, many of whom had survived fucking Verdun uh, and saw them not even flinching. So they decided that, like, (laughs) we should probably stay. Otherwise, we'll look bad if we run in front of the Verdun veterans. We got to We got to man up for the French here. That's uh, we can't we can't. We can't. (laughs) Well, this is also, this is World War One, So, I mean, the, this is like, pretty much everybody in Europe is good at fighting at this point. Like, if it's not, you know, World War One, it's like literally any, you know, any of the, the other wars that Europe was doing at any other given time. So, Americans kind of showing up, it's like, yeah, this is fun. This is, this is cool. What are we doing here? Oh, God, they're shooting at us? That's not right. That doesn't seem right. All of the bad French soldiers have been killed by now. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> While Forest D was eventually ordered to withdraw anyway, they did suffer their first combat death, a private named Glenn Staley, which it sounds like the lead singer of uh, Alice in Chains. <laughs> like, I, I read that name. It was like, ah, Lane Staley. Their first combat casualty death to uh, a bullet full of fentanyl. <laughs> God. Um, now, Private Staley was uh, wounded and left behind, which uh, you know obviously wasn't that uncommon for the day. Uh, but when he fell into Bolshevik captivity, he was uh, bayoneted to death after being taken prisoner. This would kind of set the attitude between the two sides, like, "Oh, we're killing each other's prisoners." Okay. <laughs> oh, war, war, huh? We're not doing. We're not doing gentlemen's war. We we all the enlisted people shoot each other and the officers, you know, have a cup of tea. Right. Uh, American officers are very confused as to why the hell they were there. Not exactly sure what their mission was and pointing out that they were just meant to guard some supplies. And in response, some British officers in command of the entire thing issued orders that reminded their soldiers that they, quote, were to fight an offensive war, not a defensive war, which must have been news to the Americans who uh, weren't actually where they were fighting any war at all. American officers pointed to the president of the United States specifically ordering them not to take sides in the Russian (laughs) Civil War, to which point a a British officer reportedly told them to simply go ask the president to give them new orders, Uh, (laughs) which, you know, soldiers could totally do. The current version of that in 2022 is reading a tweet from a president and then them being just like, all right, fine, add him back and see what he says, motherfucker. (laughs) Until Biden gets back at you, though, why don't you go ahead and hop on over here and get your ass shot off? You better slide in his fucking DM, soldier. <laughs> now, this, of course, effectively trapped the brigade in a war they were not supposed to be fighting, but were now solidly stuck in. 
even the Bolsheviks weren't sure what the fuck this weird international detachment <laughs> wandering around the swamp was meaning to do. Uh, so no real organized, unified attempt was made to deal with them. They did want to keep them from going any further, though, and began to bring up uh, like rail guns and stuff to shell them if they got too close from like if they pushed too far south where the Bolsheviks were comfortable for them to go, they launch some shells at them. But other than that, it was like, just leave them up there to wander around. We don't really want to deal with them at the moment. We have other shit going on. Now, Americans weren't really sure what a rail gun was yet. Um, while they had become pretty common use, uh, especially in Russia with like fast open territories, because the, the war in the East in World War I was a much more mobile war than the, like, the trenches of the Western Front. Uh, but Americans weren't sure what the big old cannon on a railroad track was. I assume because they were confused uh, by a railroad track because, uh, you know, we don't really have those. Yeah, I know. We did at the time. Leave me alone. <laughs> They're wondering why there's a big gun on that trolley. Yeah. Um, so out in the distance, they saw this big old tube sticking out of the forest and thought it was a smoke pipe for a local sawmill. And when the French said that was not the case, the Americans said to prove them wrong by going and marching over there. And that's when the smokestacks started shooting at them. And then they came under fire from nearby Bolo trenches, which were obviously there to corn in the international uh, forces, uh, which led the battalion to simply attack it. Uh, and this actually worked. Uh, they managed to chase off most of the defenders without much of a fight with one of the prisoners that they took before they murdered him, pointed out that uh, they had been left there in those trenches without orders and none of their promises for reinforcements, which should have been like 300 more men had shown up. So the men in the trench simply decided to surrender. The other Americans learning about how old Private Staley quickly got these guys as well, left them in the trench. <laughs> so <laughs> you can see how this back and forth is going to go over the course of this campaign. This is going to be a lot of bayoneting people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they, they do eventually start taking prisoners. I, I think they end up capturing like five or six Americans at some point, like bring them back to Moscow. Um, and the Americans start capturing Russians as well and handing them over to like the Russian volunteers, which I'm sure treat their captives very well. Spoiler alert, murder. <laughs> if there's anything that I've learned about Russians, it's that they're just soft handed with everything. They're really gentle, yeah. making sure that everybody's taken care of has everything that they need. Hot and cold running lice in the gulag. Very hospitable uh, towards their POWs. Yes, very. They loved them, uh, especially themselves. Uh, like <laughs> credit, credit work, credits due to the Russians. They, they, they're angry against all POWs. It doesn't matter if they're other Russians. It feels like at this time there's no real Russian identity. It's just fuck those guys over there. We're we're these guys and fuck those guys over there. There's certainly Russian identity uh, that is remaining from the Russian Empire. And you can see that because like the immediate rebirth of Russian chauvinism and the continuous attempt to reclaim the imperial Russian borders um, after the the recreation of the Soviet Union from the ashes of the fucking uh, empire. But yeah, uh, they, they just don't give a shit. Uh, it's more of a fact. <laughs> it's more of a faction thing. Um so in another position near Stelliskoy, uh, a slow-moving plane overhead uh, was thought to be American by a guy named Major Young. This is despite the fact the Americans brought no planes to Russia. <laughs> <laughs> and he ordered his men not to fire on it. I feel somebody would have noticed that, you know, if there was a bunch of airplanes that they had brought over with their Mosins. 
Did anybody notice we stuffed a whole bunch of planes in this ship? No? <laughs> oh, whatever. But also, this is like, airplane, air flight had only been invented like 15 years beforehand. So, like, really, like, like did anybody find an airplane? No, you're not going to find an F-35 tucked behind something. But, like, some balsa wood and canvas could be turned into an airplane at this point. As long as you know the physics of it. Well, I mean... The planes were pretty common for World War One at this point already, mostly for scouting, uh, bombing. They weren't exactly very good at, but Major Young orders his men not to fire on this plane. However, someone else along the line opened fire with a machine gun, uh, probably knowing that they didn't bring any planes, which brought it crashing to the ground. Major Young ran towards the downed plane in an attempt to uh, save the pilot, yelling, quote, don't shoot, we're Americans, only to immediately <laughs> get shot at by the Bolshevik crew inside the plane who was still alive. Now, this sent Young running for cover, and then, like, the rest of the people in the line shot the pilots. And afterward, uh, the men in the battalion mocked him by yelling out, don't shoot, we're Americans, whenever they came <laughs> under attack. That's just fun. It's to have dudes being bros. You know, the, you, there, there's not a lot of time for humor in the trenches and shitting on one of your buddies. That's how you know you've been accepted. Not shitting on a buddy, shitting on a major. Yeah, that too. <laughs> now, this is probably one of my favorite parts of the entire story, and that is what was going on in the city of Archangel while all this was happening. By the end of September, 65 members of the Detroit Zone would be dead, virtually all of them from Spanish flu, which had been cutting through the ranks and the city as a whole like a wildfire. Hospitals overflowed as people described it like a scene out of Dante's Inferno. (laughs) One soldier, delirious from fever, began to think of medical staff were hoarding oranges, so he demanded that he be given some, saying, quote, either give me those oranges or I'm going to let her rip. Now, you're probably wondering, what exactly is he going to let rip? (laughs) What is it? (laughs) Well, they didn't give him oranges because, like, they weren't stealing them from him. Uh, He he furiously began shitting and vomiting simultaneously (laughs) all over the hospital and then dropped dead. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, I'm Johnny Knoxville and welcome to World War (laughs) I. Like, have you ever been so bad at someone you shit and puked all over yourself and dropped dead out of spite? (laughs) Not yet. I'm holding out hope. Life goals, baby. The life goals. That's what it's going to be. I'm going to get COVID and it's going to be so bad. And they're going to say, oh, we'll put you on a ventilator and say, nope, just drag me to my closest enemy so I can scream at them, vomit and shit myself to death. (laughs) I want that to be the, the last thing they see of me. I came into this world covered in shit and vomit. I'll go out of this world covered in shit and vomit. Now, uh, a good reason for all of these problems was uh, Archangel was a pretty small city with a peacetime population of maybe 50,000. It fluctuated back and forth. But since the, uh, the Allied intervention, as well as the Russian Civil War, drove refugees into it, the population had tripled. Uh, in a very, very short amount of time. And because of this wartime overpopulation, if the Allies didn't bring it with them, that being literally any kind of supply, the town simply didn't have it. Stores were barren outside of fish and fish-related products, which were noted as being (laughs) thin or spoiled. Um, This went for water as well, with the only water available in the city came from a swamp outside of the barracks, which soldiers noted was, quote, as yellow as tea. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Delicious. 
Fellas, this might have something to do with the fact why you're shitting and dying all over the place. <laughs> no, I think it's fine. This is all dysentery, right? That they got. This isn't like cholera or anything. This is, this I mean, is it's, full-blown it's cholera. Dysentery. It's dysentery. It's Spanish flu. It's you. You fucking name it. It's a grab bag. It's a. It's what it is. A lot of a lot of ghosts and a lot of blood. We we call it the Grand Slam. <laughs> Outside of horrible illness and disease, there was a small problem with currency in the city. That being there was like three or four different currencies floating around. And that's just counting the shit being printed in Russia at the time. And none of it was worth anything. So without going into it very far, the Russian Empire printed currency, which then obviously the Russian Empire collapsed. The provisional government then printed currency, which then collapsed. Um, the Bolsheviks print currency, which then like went out of favor. And then in the area that they were in, that being Archangel, decided to also call itself a government, um, calling itself the sovereign government of northern Russia. And they printed their own currencies, which was also worthless. And this was not uncommon for Russia at the time. Yeah, I mean, regional banking was a thing like in america and it would never worked out well because of literally what you're saying the shit like as soon as somebody's like i don't want to be a bank anymore or a bank collapses that fucks everybody now imagine that happens but also there's war and like yeah. the regional the regional currency you're using then got snuffed out because the team that you were on lost <laughs> um and there's nothing backing it and that's on top of like british french and american money that was floating around as well now, this sovereign government of Northern Russia was ran by a guy named Nicholas Tchaikovsky. Um, now, he's an interesting character who had spent several years of his life in Independence, Kansas, in the United States, attempting to start a cult, which failed. Um, <laughs> whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait. You can't just say a cult. Like, what kind of cult are we talking about? Is this like, is it a religious cult? Like specific, is it like a, a Russian Orthodoxy cult? Is it a weird sex cult? Is it a Jim Jones cult? What's he got going on here? In well, technically, all of those are religious cults. Fair, fair enough. I did. <laughs> I, I mean, that is that is my my first mistake. There, they're always religious cults. It's not really a a, a cult of dudes rocking. That's just that's just called a podcast. Um, it it was like a weird Orthodoxy cult mixed with like celestial communism. Kind of. Where are you go? Like that's. I mean, it's Kansas. He failed for a reason. I, Kansas isn't exactly ripe for like the pseudo <laughs> no celestial communist cult, especially back then. He was before his time. Jim Jim Jones. Uh, uh, he walked so Jim Jones could run. <laughs> Did Jim Jones do this in Kansas? No, he uh, he started in California before he went down to Guyana. Yeah. Yeah, you can California is easy. You can anybody can start a cult in California. That's that's fucking easy mode there. Starting one in Kansas, that's pretty hard. I, I gotta give him props. Yeah, well, he failed. Um not, do I need to not hand it to him real quick? The, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean no his cult failed, he ended up moving back to the United States. He bounced around the United States for quite some time joining other cults, uh, including like the Shakers up in New York State. And before moving back to Russia, specifically northern Russia, uh, like politically, he was still a communist, though he was super into the church, as like his cult thing would tell you. So that put him at odds with the Bolsheviks, who really didn't like the Orthodox Church. So that landed him squarely an archangel working with the allies, despite him really not liking them. 
And then if that wasn't weird enough, Tchaikovsky and his entire cabinet were then kidnapped by a Russian naval officer named Georgi Chaplin, who also happened to be on General Poole's staff uh, as like the local loyalist who could like kind of smooth things over for him with the Russian population. Now, Chaplin didn't like Tchaikovsky, mostly because of the cult thing. But this led to a general strike of the people of Archangel, who actually liked Tchaikovsky. And the people believed that the Allies were in on the kidnapping, who actually weren't. They had no idea what was happening, um, but squarely got the blame because they knew Chaplin worked for them. Now, this led to one of the weirdest things I think I've ever read about. The striking workers of Archangel uh, also operate like the transit system, streetcars, taxis, horses, things like that. Um, and with them going on strike, left no decent means of travel within the city of Archangel. And this left the Allies not really sure what was going on. Uh, they had no idea what happened to the last government or what Chaplin was planning. So while they tried to figure out where Tchaikovsky and his entire cabinet went, they had to uh, figure out what to do with like this transit problem. Uh, So the battalion commander of the U.S. Army simply asked who of his men who had been able to operate streetcars back home. And soon, all of the streetcars in Archangel Russia are being worked by some Detroit kids who weren't even bothering to charge anybody fares because they had no idea how much money anything was. (laughs) (laughs) So congratulations to America for bringing true communism to Russia, I guess. International scabbing. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, 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 I gotta admit, like it's a streetcar. I guess it doesn't really take too much to uh, to to learn how to push a lever to make it go forward. Maybe I mean, I imagine know. it's it's probably more complicated than that, and especially in a place like you know Archangel Russia, where you probably had specific training on how to use this thing without breaking it. And if you weren't from Detroit in this battalion, you were probably some like from farm in Kentucky or something, so you had no idea what to do either. But eventually, the strike was brought to the end when the old government was located and brought back into the city, and Chaplin was told not to fucking kidnap them again. <laughs> Bad naval officer. No kidnapping the government. In the middle of all of this, the city was awash with grifters and thieves. From the Red Cross to the YMCA to the military quartermasters, everybody was stealing everything that came in on the boats to support either the humanitarian relief or the war effort, all of it being sold on the local black market. Now, this included thousands upon thousands of cases of whiskey, even to the medical supplies. Soldiers noted that their supply clerks got suspiciously wealthy. In one case, (laughs) a sergeant who was caught smuggling sugar made $89,000. Holy shit. In case you're wondering, that's $1.5 million in today's (laughs) dollars. (laughs) Fucking king shit, man. That that is that is impressive. Like over sugar, just smuggling sugar. Yeah, and he got caught because of the sheer amount of volume that that amount of money takes up. Like he couldn't hide it all. <laughs> he's got a. He's doing the uh, Breaking Bad thing where he's got to like rent someplace to just put cash that he doesn't know what to do with. Yeah, but he's like also in the Arctic Circle. Like, oh God, where am I going to put all this money? And he's just like stashing it in his suitcases in the walls of some like yurt. You just dig a hole, man. Just put it in the snow. Sure, it's just fine. Dig sh- just dig a hole and put it. Lay fucking pirate that shit up, man. Put it down in the. <laughs> now, granted, granted, like, when are you going to to come back to be able to pick that up? Is the next question. I mean, if I had a choice, never. Um, yeah. 
<laughs> Look, if you told me right now that you would not go back to Afghanistan because you stashed fucking uh, $1.2 million. That's first off, that's a, that's a Netflix movie right there. That's fucking triple frontier, but it's us. It's three Kings, <laughs> you know, that's what this is. So like, I, I would absolutely fucking book a ticket to go back to Afghanistan to dig up my 1.2 million. I don't know how I'm getting it home, but it's there. So there lies the problem. You don't let money lay, man. That's all I'm saying. I'm not the president of Afghanistan. I can't just like squirrel it away in a private jet and fly <laughs> into Kyrgyzstan or something. Two big bags that have dollar signs on the outside of it. Not money. <laughs> just paint on them. Not money. Please don't search. Now, I felt like I had to dip back into the city just to remind people that soldiers caught out away from it, you know, in the swamps or whatever. It really had nowhere good to go. And honestly, being trapped out in the middle of a swamp is probably better than actually being an archangel at the time. Which is where Company B of Detroit's own found itself in the middle of September, around 200 miles away from the city near the town of Seltzo. Left there by British commanders in the middle of a swamp without rations or supplies, wearing just the uniforms on their back as it pissed down rain, they occasionally got shelled by Bolshevik positions from inside the town. The Bolsheviks had also built a ton of rafts to float down the nearby Vena River and launch shells at them like a really slow riverine drive-by. <laughs> <laughs> that they really didn't have any answers for, right? Um, so it was said that the men of Company B should attack Seltzo, chase them out of their positions, and at least silence some of the guns. Or, you know, get shelled to pieces all by the guns around them anyway. So they did that, running directly into a machine gun nest, sending them running into the nearby woods and stopping their attack. So, so much for that, boys. We tried. <laughs> <laughs> did you though we tried, we tried the only attack we know we ran right at them <laughs> we hit their bullets uh with our chests and somehow that didn't work now this brings us to what has to be the dumbest idea that pool had and this is a man who had no shortage of very dumb ideas <laughs> truly a man at the pinnacle of his game surrounded by the dumbest military commanders of all time pool sticks out so remember how he expected Detroit's own to make it 300 miles down a river? Enter the plague flotilla. <laughs> <laughs> is this still our Grand Slam plague or do we have a specific plague this time? This is mostly Spanish flu. Yeah. Oh, okay. Now, the entire 1st Battalion, A through D companies, would leave Archangel floating slowly down the Divina River towards Cotlas. The rafts would be lashed together by civilian workers or be like former livestock rafts requisitioned by the soldiers. And everybody ordered aboard them had never worked or navigated a river a single day in their lives. You just you just take a pole and when you get too close to something, you poke it and you either move yourself or you move the thing. Just poke it with a stick. You poke it with a stick. Either you move yourself or you move the thing you're poking. Very simple. Look, I grew up on a river. It's fine. Detroit, there's a river. Don't you guys have a river? Yeah, we have one river. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Somebody's got to know how to do something here. Uh, hold on to that thought. <laughs> the rafts were originally used to transport coal and cattle in giant unventilated holds, which meant everything was covered in coal dust and cow shit in case you thought mm. that they would, I don't know, wash these out or something. And unventilated means it's not. <laughs> there's no fresh no. air in there. You're just clam bacon cow ass. Uh, that mm. these holds were where the soldiers would be stashed as well, and because they were originally not designed for people, no light could get through, trapping uh, several hundred men in pitch dark, covered in shit and dust, and no way out whatsoever. 
for how long? How long were they in these things? Um, for quite a while. Uh, I mean, they have to go 300 miles down a river very slowly. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Almost immediately, men began dropping dead as the Spanish yes. flu started tearing through the holds because, you know, no ventilation. So many men began falling ill and dying. A soldier said the flotilla reminded him more of a funeral procession than an expedition of war. Each time a man died, they'd pull the flotilla over to the side of the river and bury him in, on the shore in some nearby village, which I'm sure confused the fuck out of the people living there. <laughs> a whole bunch of Americans showed up, dumped their trash in my backyard, and they just kept going. I'm glad that they did that and not just like chucked them out the side into the river. Because all I can think of is just like, oh, look, Benny made it here before us. I mean, he's a little bit more floaty than the rest of us because he died, you know, <laughs> fucking nine days ago. But Frank is awfully blue. <laughs> the barges had no heating nor any way to start a fire without sinking them while they're underway, nor did they have any bedding in them whatsoever. The soldiers were expected to lay down and sleep on the cold shit covered floors. Medical services were left to the British leadership, who decided to supply them with absolutely none of it, and everybody on <laughs> the boats is left to die. <laughs> British officers love to just fucking kill the shit out of people through neglect, man. Like, if there's anything that, like, you know, like, the British officers of this time, like, the early 1900s, late, you know, 1800s, man, they just love to be like, well, go fuck yourself and just like fuck off and do whatever. Have a spot of tea while everybody dies. It's incredible. I don't know why. Like, I feel like the British do it more than anybody else. Like the Soviets would at least, you know, like push you towards bullets. They'd be they'd be actively doing something. The British let you die through passivity, which uh, is beautiful in a way. Horrifying, but beautiful. Well, also importantly, the British officers kept all the medical supplies for British soldiers. They didn't care about well, the American too. ones. It's like you're on your own, homie. Fuck off. Now, by September 12th, they had reached the town of Besnerik. It's a base of the so-called riverfront uh, for their advance. Almost everyone was sick, getting sicker or dead. 40 of the men were so sick they had to be left behind the British hospital in town, which is barely equipped to handle 15 men total. The British put the overflow men into a nearby outhouse where they all died. An outer house, not like a toilet, right? Did I stutter? <laughs> I meant they put them in a literal shitter until they died. Well, I mean, if that's what you're doing is shitting, you might as well be on the shitter while you die. I guess. I don't know. Real easy to bury you, too. There's already a hole underneath you. And credit where credit's due, those Americans were also banded with several British soldiers who also had the Spanish flu. So this is, this is an equal opportunity uh, death house of, of poop and, and misery. Yes, much like the Russians, we also don't give a shit if our own people are dying. <laughs> right. World War One soldier leadership was mostly, how can I kill these people in the quickest possible <laughs> manner? Right. It's like, look, why, why should I let the, the damn Germans have the glory of killing my boys when I can kill them myself? <laughs> the Bolsheviks can't kill my soldiers. I kill my soldiers. Exactly. Now, after being packed back into the floating disease vector and being left to die, the riverfront of ass went well. With the bolos in the area simply not trying to put up much of a fight, remember, that wasn't their goal at the time, whether that be because they lacked manpower or will or because Trotsky didn't quite care yet. But at one point, this did lead to a river navy gun battle between Russian riverboats and a British monitor, which is kind of fun. 
What, what's a British monitor? Is that a ship? Yeah, it's like an ironclad, <laughs> like a river ironclad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, I got gotcha. you. It's like wooden Russian boats versus a British boat in a river. Um, but also it was kind of like overkill because the Russian boats had no intention of like fighting. They were just there to harass ground troops or the riverine flotilla. So when an actual warship showed up, like, ah, we're out of here. It's not fun anymore when you're around. Just very reminiscent of Russia's current Navy and how it also is falling apart in many ways. It's, hey, it's cheaper when it's made out of wood. Uh, you know, uh, no, finally, at fair. the town of Seltzo, Americans were left to charge across an open swamp into Russian machine gun fire, which, this might surprise <laughs> you, did not go well. And led to retreating to the town of Yakolevskaya, where they dug it. Once there, the Russians shelled them without any end. And once again, they were left without food, water, or shelter as they began pouring rain and flooding their trenches. This did not stop another push into Seltzo, however, at the urging of the British, uh, which left several more men dead and nothing gained. The next day, with another attack, they did finally take the town, only to find it completely abandoned. The Russians had left their wounded behind and several soldiers, hearing about what had happened before, began killing them because that's what we're doing now. Yeah, I mean, look, if you don't got food for your own people, definitely don't got food for the POWs. Look, I'm not saying you have to take care of them. The Geneva Convention says that, but you can at least not murder them. <laughs> Apparently not. Apparently that's just what you got to do. It's asking uh, too in, much. In yeah. World War One, like, and and honestly, like, what what is the other option? Like, you're in the middle of nowhere. You can't exactly. I mean, can you transport these guys out to a POW? You can just leave them. They would just join the other guys again. That's fine. It's better than murdering them. <laughs> it's fine. I mean, look, morality uh, would say yes, and I definitely agree that you shouldn't kill POWs. But, uh, you know, at the time, I can definitely understand a like, look, it's you got it. You got to do something, I guess. I don't know, man. You need to point out how uncommon it was to murder POWs during World War One. Okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, everybody just seems very savage 100 years ago. So I didn't know if that was just one of those, you know, kind of like how talking about, uh, you know, how Charles II came about. And you're just like, yeah, you know, me thinking is like, yeah, it's, it's normal that, you know, back then kings would like marry their cousins or their sisters or whatever. And you're just like, no, it's not. Everybody thought it was. Yeah, but that's weird. like 200 years before World War One. That, yeah, I know. But I mean, still, I've just, I have, I have strange expectations. Well, I have different expectations of what these people are like. And, you know, to me, it's just like, yeah, of course they're murdering POWs. But then you say, no, no, they didn't actually do that very much. Uh, they were a little bit more civilized with their war. Well, depending on what front you were, you had a pretty good chance of surviving if you fell into captivity. That's, of course, huh. All right. asterisks, your experience may vary. <laughs> Now, after being ordered into a swamp death pit for several days at a time, a British major congratulated the men with a gallon of rum, despite the fact they hadn't eaten in over a day, <laughs> uh, which I'm sure felt very good in their stomachs. Hey, that means you're a cheap drunk, baby. It's not like they were aiming their busted-ass rifles anyway. Uh, also, the town was barely secure with a, a river that cut through it being patrolled by Russian gunboats, leaving them to float by and attack the soldiers at will. At one point, rumors of a Russian counterattack led the entire city to be abandoned in the middle of the night in panic, and they retreated all the way back towards Yakolev, only to realize there was no attack, and then having to walk back to Seltzo like a bunch of fucking idiots. <laughs> These poor guys. <laughs> Solid leadership all around, folks. You feel bad for the fucking the 20-year-old the private, you know? 
Oh, the twenty-year-old is the fucking sergeant at this point. <laughs> yeah, well, they didn't. De- they didn't deserve this. They didn't deserve this leadership. Like, remember, all of them thought they were just going to go to France, like everyone else. They're like, where the fuck even? Like, some people don't even know where Russia is. <laughs> Another advance into the next village called Puchaga was ordered with uh, soldiers low on every kind of supply, and it was noted that they're rolling up and smoking tea leaves because they're out of cigarettes. And in case you're wondering, everybody notes that that was disgusting, and they shouldn't have done that. Um, don't smoke tea leaves. <laughs> It reminds me of like there's a Chris Rock bit. Um, I think in like 2000, maybe before that, and bigger and blacker, when he pointed out that like if you put a whole bunch of dudes bored in a room together, they'll find a way to get fucked up. Like yeah, if you yes. put a whole bunch of lima beans into a pipe and smoke it, you'll get fucked up. And uh, here's some soldiers smoking tea leaves in a trench out of boredom. So hey, look, man, during the next world war, they're going to be eating boot polish. Oh, they were still eating boot polish. No worries there. <laughs> Chris Rock, noted historian. Uh, now at this point they hadn't slept eaten or had really even any water to drink in it like two or three days Uh, and they were ordered to advance onto the village itself sinking into muddy trails and roads the mud was so deep and thick that some men had to join hands to walk along and pull each other out of the mud as they went solid way to advance on a military target hand in hand thankfully when they got there that village was also abandoned (laughs) Do these, what 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 are the what's what's the goal here? Like what is what is the British? What are they trying to accomplish here? Like killing Bolsheviks? Like are they just what, what's the whole point? No, remember there's they're simply going to advance 300 miles to take a railhead where they're going to meet with the Czech Legion and then simply reopen the entire eastern front of World War One. Simple as. Uh, okay. With eight thousand sure. soldiers. With eight thousand sure. soldiers, they're going to do this. Yeah. Is that is that eight thousand before they started getting on the plague ships? Like, what are we at now? Yes. Currently, okay. They don't take horrible casualties, but there's certainly less than uh, than eight thousand men by now. <laughs> After this flotilla went down the Vaga River, a tributary of the Vena, and found themselves in the town of Shenkursk, which fell without much of a fight, and the Allies were welcomed by the locals. But before they could relax, they were replaced by British soldiers and kicked out further south towards a cluster of villages called the Unspandanga, where they marched for another 18 hours through marches and forests without seeing anything until they started randomly getting shot at. <laughs> As you do. At this point, the Americans had been reinforced by some local volunteers, and they realized that they were getting outranged and couldn't actually shoot back. Now, this had to have been a, a bit of a kick in the nuts to some of the uh, American soldiers when they realized that the bolos that were shooting at them were armed with American rifles that they had stolen from the stores that they had originally been sent there to defend. And the Americans stuck with their Mosins, but more importantly, stuck with sites they did not know how to use, had no way to shoot back and had to wait for their accompanying gunboat to uh, float up slowly and support them with cannon fire before they could advance. That had, that had to be the ultimate fuck you. That's such a kick in the dick. Somehow, simultaneously, that's a fuck you from the Bolsheviks and the British. Because remember, their entire mission was to defend those stores, which no longer existed. (laughs) And now they're getting shot at by them. With the support of that local boat, they are able to drive them from a nearby cliff face and take the town of Rodovskaya. However, Captain Ojard, the U.S. commander in the area, knew they were kind of out in the middle of nowhere and outnumbered. And should the Bolos actually want to push them out? It would be pretty easy to do so. 
So he ordered his men to patrol around constantly around the clock in order to mask their true numbers. Of course, this is a life hack that ends with you having just a whole bunch of tired soldiers. (laughs) And they were eventually reinforced with some local volunteers again and some Canadian artillerists, though the Canadian artillerists had no artillery. Whoops. I mean, you went to Afghanistan without a tank once, so, I mean. Yeah, but eh, at at least nowadays we're taught basic infantry tactics. (laughs) (laughs) Artillery is being like lashed and slowly floated down the river, so they would eventually get there, but they showed up there without any. Um, The next day, the same group of soldiers was ordered to attack Ninjipuya, which is a nearby village garrisoned with around 600 bolos. At the first sign of contact, the volunteers that had reinforced them ran off to hide behind a church. Like an American sergeant ran over to like throw them back into combat and to see what the hell they were doing. They found the men calmly sitting on the ground and drinking coffee, despite the fact they were in the middle of a pretty sizable gun battle. Uh, as one person said, quote, they had a machine gun, but seemed very disinterested in using it. <laughs> <laughs> you don't fuck with chai time, man. I, I don't understand. Like, they had built a fire, gotten comfortable, and just decided to make coffee. <laughs> I, that's, I, that's that's an impressive amount of laziness. I, I just, I feel like it's just, you just don't give a shit anymore. It's like that video of the the guy cooking steaks during a firefight. like. You got, I mean, everybody else has got it handled. You know, you can't really do nothing. Man's got to eat. <laughs> you know, you got coffee here. I can't shoot back at the moment. So, fuck it. Let's just have some coffee. Let's chill There's out. a whole bunch of guys taking cover. Like, you know what I could go for right now? Let's go for some <laughs> coffee. Just like slinging the rifle and calmly walking away from the machine gun fire. Holding up like a finger. Like, no, no, no. One minute. Yeah. No, it didn't matter because eventually the villagers captured because the bullos again didn't exactly want to stick around doing house-to-house fighting and fucked off. Unfortunately for just about everyone, it was now October, and on the 15th, it began to snow. Temperatures were dropping quickly, and the Americans had no winter clothing. This, it turned out, was exactly how far any Allied unit would penetrate into Russia during the strange sideshow of a war. (laughs) Over 100 miles away from Kotlas, which, remember, was their actual objective. Their positions were pulled back to Unstpendenga and lacked any way to do it other than marching. So now snowing uh, and having, you know, tired, wounded, sick, whatever, they now had to pull back. And uh, they had to use local Russian horse carts. But the ground was so slippery, even the horses tripped and fell, which, you know, Ends with them getting shot. R.I.P. horses. Hey, but you know what? Takes care of the uh, the food problems. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, horse life hack. Hey. <laughs> now, but not all of the horses tripped and busted their ass. I was going to say, you can't eat an MRAP. I'm just going to point that out. Uh, not with that attitude. You got you to <laughs> harvest that succulent truck meat. Uh, now the horses that didn't slip and fall, uh, did move very, very slowly, you know, for self-preservation mostly. And this created a, uh, 300 cart deep traffic jam. Eventually, however, they got there and the plan was to spend winter held up and, uh, you know, relaunch their offensive at the break of spring. So now with two thirds of Detroit's own flung and scattered across the railway front, the Vena and the Vaga rivers and under British command, you might be asking yourself, Mostly because I haven't actually said anything yet. Where the fuck was the American in charge of all of this? <laughs> Enter Colonel George Stewart. 
I was going to say, there's got to be an officer somewhere. You can't. You just don't have a bunch of enlisted guys show up, right? So yeah. where's the colonel been this whole time? So Colonel Stewart was a man who was awarded the Medal of Honor in the Philippines and definitely not the way you'd expect him to. Instead of doing what I'm going to assume you thought was horrible things, he actually rescued someone from drowning, which back in the day was good enough for a Medal of Honor. (laughs) Well, there's probably no doubt that Stewart was a good person. He was definitely not a good officer, which is the hardest kind of officer to hate, in my opinion. Most of the officers who were good men that I've met were not necessarily great officers. The great men, yeah, though, same. great people to hang out with. Now, while all of this was going on, Stewart himself was living in the Vina Technical Institute, which was virtually the only modern-ish building in the entire area and included electric lighting and steam heat. As his soldiers lived destitute and in squalor, he lived in the closest thing to luxury the war had to offer. Now, that's all on par for the chorus. But generally, officers who live in such quarters at least head out to visit their soldiers every once in a while to play the common man game bullshit. Stewart didn't have time for that. He barely did even that, leaving the heated building only rarely. His soldiers knew about him and knew where he was staying, and they fucking hated him. Things only got worse when he was told that there was a funeral for dead soldiers nearby, I think mostly killed from the flu. Uh, And he dipped out early because it was too cold outside. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I can just Uh, imagine, like, a colonel on funeral detail. And as you're going through, uh, uh, like, the motions, he holds up, like, the wrap it up box from the Chappelle show. (laughs) It's too cold out for the shit, man. Wrap it up. On another trip to the front, he lost his mitten. One, accused a nearby soldier of having stolen it, and then went back into his building because he couldn't bear to be outside without a mitten. (laughs) And you know 100% that what he did was he fucking chucked his mitten somewhere where nobody was looking and then used that as, as an excuse to fuck off. Like, well, I can't find one of my mittens, so obviously I can't be out here, guys. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's right. This private... Private Malarkey over here wants to play games. I have to go back inside into my electrically lit steam heated room while the rest of you can fuck off doing war stuff. That's right. It looks cold out there. You guys have fun. Now, it was rumored that Stuart didn't even know where his soldiers had been deployed and never once questioned the British about it. At one point while at the front, he asked the soldier pointing to a, a flare gun that they had and asked, quote, what kind of cannon do you call this? <laughs> <laughs> phenomenal love Fuck him to yes. death we need to have a whole episode about him this is about it he's innocuous as far as like being a true bastard goes or like you know a donkey or whatever he because he's never really in command of anything now Stuart is an idiot but his disconnection from his men and total subservience to the british officers was actually part of the plan on the part of the british Wherever there was an American officer, the British made sure there was a senior British one. Not even individual companies were left out of this. This meant the British had totally and completely overtaken American units as if they were their own, because in effect, they were. This system was made easier by the British regulation that allowed temporary promotions without pay or allowance. So at any point, if there was like an American captain, suddenly every British man around him would spontaneously become a major and outrank him. (laughs) (laughs) 
they're reverse revolutionary warring us at that point. It's just like, <laughs> oh, nope, technically you're ours now. And uh, all your soldiers are ours now, too. We can, they, they all outrank. We've got a six star general. I, you've never heard of it before, yeah. but we've got one. Yeah. Fuck you. We'll, we'll make a seven star. Don't tempt us. <laughs> this man is a lieutenant last week. Uh, now, this also meant much more junior officers were telling company commanders and American officers above them what to do without having to worry about fucking up and killing their own soldiers because they were Americans. This is how you get situations like the one where General Poole ordered a push from the city of Oberskaya to Plenskaya, which is about 40 miles away. This advance is going to occur at night through deep swamps without any local Russian guides. When the American captain voices concern to a British major who was actually a lieutenant three weeks before, he was told to quote, you Americans can do it somehow. (laughs) I believe in you. This, of course, led to a group of soldiers getting lost in a swamp nearly deep enough to drown them. And by the time they thought they were at their attack point uh, by first light, they discovered they actually had done a gigantic circle ending right back at the start point. The next day, when the American captain got his forces moving again, this time actually finding his way through the swamp and linking up with the units already fighting, his forces tipped the scale of the battle. So, of course, the British commander, Colonel Sutherland, then shelled the Americans on accident, causing them to run back and give the area back to the Polos. When Sutherland was told he was killing friendly troops uh, as a form of like, Dear God, please stop shelling us. You're blowing up Americans. He reportedly sat down in a chair and asked for a drink before ordering the artillery commander to cut it out. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Again, they just uh, just doesn't give a shit if people die. It's incredible. Now, Sutherland ordered the attack called off, mostly because, you know, he had defeated it himself with his fucked up artillery. But U.S. Major Brooks Nichols refused his order and ordered his troops to attack the village anyway without any support, mostly out of spite. Uh, When he did this, he captured an important bridge, driving the bolos back. And this, while a victory, also fundamentally actually changed the course of this Side war, war. It's it's not really World War One. It's it's a completely different war at this point. But the war changed the war. Now, if you remember back to part one, Leon Trotsky and Vladimir Lenin had kind of, sort of been fine with the Allies landing an Archangel. Like they weren't allies for sure. Like they didn't like sign an agreement and said, "No, you guys can kind of just stomp around and be assholes in our backyard. That's fine." But it was kind of like. You know, we have a whole civil war to deal with. We don't really care. Archangel isn't that tactically important when you guys aren't sending supplies into it anymore. So we don't care. Not to mention, like, the threat of the German Empire was very, very real. Um, even they agreed to end the war. It, you know, don't trust the German Empire, I guess. Is <laughs> it, it, like, it's what I say. It's never get involved in a land war with Asia. Uh, never trust a Sicilian when death is on the line. And number three is... You know, don't, don't fuck with the Germans, man. Or don't, 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 uh, don't do that, man. Don't, don't trust the Kaiser's weird mustache and baby arm. Um, uh, I forgot the baby <laughs> arm. <laughs> so Leon Trotsky is thinking, how much damage could these allies really do with a couple thousand soldiers with the, like the, all of this land, right? But now, having successfully driven several hundred miles south and with no end in sight, it became pretty clear to the uh, the revolutionary Russians that uh, these allies might keep fucking around and it might be time for them to find out. And that is where we'll pick up next time. Oh, we love a cliffhanger. We love a cliffhanger. 
When we last left our intrepid forces, they were fucking around. When we last left our intrepid forces, this is how pretty much every episode is going to start and end. <laughs> when we when we last left the Americans, they were lost in a swamp. Stay tuned next time where they're still <laughs> lost in a swamp. Uh, but this time there's less of them for many reasons. Yes. Now, Francis, that is part two. Thank you for joining me again. And uh, this is the plug zone. Plug your show that uh, involves significantly less being lost in swamps. Uh, I mean, I got lost in a minefield once, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> As I said, Afghanistan was a wild place in 2004. Uh, I run uh, What a Hell of a Way to Die podcast. Uh, and also we have things to buy online for pin for yourself, your pins. If you like Soviet pins, if you like normal pins, if you like patches and stuff, all that stuff's online. Uh, hellofawaytodie.com. Joe, I, I really, as I said, I always appreciate coming on your show and and listening to just how fucked up it could have been for me <laughs> if I had been born. Like, <laughs> imagine being born a hundred years earlier than currently. Couldn't be me. Like, just couldn't. Could hopefully wouldn't be me. I, I can say uh, if I was born a hundred years earlier, things would probably not pan out great for me. Uh, <laughs> um, and that's my solemn promise to both Francis and our intrepid listeners. That is, every time you tune in, someone will die of some horrible intestinal disease. Many preventable deaths will have happened. Of course. Uh, that, that, that is the lions led by donkeys uh, promise that these people did not, in fact, have to die. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, until next time, don't invade Russia using a riverine flotilla of plague ships.